Sport. Uh, welcome to ConCon, episode seven, Consciousness Conversations, where we talk about all things consciousness, AI, neuroscience, psychology. Uh, I'm DR. And I'm Ben. And we are coming to you from beautiful Taormina, Italy. Uh, this is day five of the Science of Consciousness Conference. Um, I did confirm that it used to be called Toward a, uh, uh, Toward a Science of Consciousness, and it was 2015, I believe, when they changed it. And there was everyone's like, yeah, it's time. They figured it out. We can at just, that point. yeah, we, we're, we're science now. Um, so this was an interesting. Um, you know, each day has kind of had a very different tone, a different focus. Uh, yesterday was very AI focused. Today um, was much more animal driven. Um, so we had, well, I mean, I guess there's a variety of things, but the, in the in the morning specifically was about animal consciousness. And um, the first speaker, Franz DeWall, is kind of a personal hero of mine and one of the people I was the most excited to see. Um, he wrote this book in the 70s called Chimpanzee Politics, which apparently I've heard they like politicians give to each other. Wait, in the 70s? Yeah, it's super old. I know. He, he looked he a lot. He looks pretty he good. Looks, yeah, I think he was a grad student or something when he did it. Um, and it was pretty groundbreaking at the time. The this um, In the Netherlands, it was a, a sanctuary. It was like one of the first times they'd had a huge sanctuary for... Um, a bunch of chimps, but it was enclosed. So normally it's tough to study groups of chimps um, on their own and it, like out in the wild. But in here they had like a very, you know, a closed community. So it's not exactly like in the wild, but there's a bunch of them. So they could observe a lot of the kind of political machinations, how, you know, alphas uh, be uh, joined, like were asserted and accepted. And it's just beautiful and so a big part of his thesis i've read several of his books uh, most recently mama's last hug um are about you know the continuity of human and animal emotions um and he introduced a new term to us uh so he said like often there um we think about anthropocentrism or no wait what is it yeah anthropocentrism anthropocentric notions yeah it's like when you when you sort of ascribe human uh qualities to something and he's like we also have the opposite which is anthropo denial which is which is when people like see something uh you know see a, a monkey laughing and they're like well that's not laughter that's what, what did he say they were supposed to call it like uh, yeah vocalized panting vocalized that, panting. that's not laughter that's it's not vocalized laughter. panting yeah. And he's like, you see a hand and it's a hand. Don't call it like a paw or it's like these are entities that are very similar to us. Their emotional framework, you know, the way that they engage with the world is very similar to us. Yeah, it is kind of absurd when you look at like sort of all the behaviorism and the sort of like, I realize why you would want to say it's not laughing. But by the same token, it it just seems utterly absurd, like on the face. Um, he talked about a bunch of these mirror studies that they've done with different animals um, and how different animals sort of recognize themselves differently in the mirrors. Um, you know, chimps recognize themselves right away and will immediately start looking at each other. They did one with elephants that was quite similar. They had some video. And then uh, they said that one of the things that they do is they look inside their mouths when, yeah. they, uh, when they look in the mirror. And, uh, yeah, he said that, you know, it's this area that you feel all the time, but you never know what your own mouth inside of your mouth looks like. But it was just like this very common experience that I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. He also talked about yawn contagion. So we know, like, if I yawn, you're likely to yawn. And interestingly, yawn contagion, you know, carries over into monkeys 
Um, or was it maybe just apes? Maybe apes and monkeys. But also there was an in-group bias, which humans also have. Yeah. Right? Which I thought was interesting. Um, yeah. He So he talked about kind of self-awareness, empathy. Um, and one of the things that he um, said, which is stuff that I've read, you know, is this kind of idea of a punctuated um, sense of like self um, where it's like, oh, none of these guys are conscious or, or have, you know, empathy or have a sense of self. Yeah, here's the hard line and then threshold. Here's the hard line. Yeah. Apes and humans or dogs and apes and dolphins and humans or whatever. And he's like drew this like very gradual line. And he called like, it a through line. Right? Yeah. Or a continuum. Yeah. Um, that, that that's sense probably of self. the thesis of his talk. Right. Was sort yeah. of trying to drive home that there's maybe a continuum of self-awareness and consciousness. Yeah. In the, in the, um, and, and this has been, you know. I think in, in Mama's Last Hug, he says, in Mama, it was one of the apes that he talks about in Chimpanzee Politics who died, and he was one of the last people who saw her. And um, the, he talks about kind of more boldly than he has in the past about like, these are the same emotions that we have, and these emotional systems are very similar. Um, very similar to some, um, you know, the Mark Solm stuff uh, about consciousness and emotions, and yeah, anyway. Yeah, so... Uh, Maybe uh, we take a step back slightly here, and I feel like him and uh, Nicholas Humphrey, Humphreys, Humphrey, they have these evolutionary arguments. They're really appealing to me, it mainly saying like, you know, so he said, look, self-awareness is what you need to know how to act in the world. You have to know your own capacities, like how uh, much less far you can jump when you have like a child uh, monkey on your back. And so every animal must have this capacity, right? It seems like sort of like something you have to have. Right? Yeah. Um, and yet <laughs> I, w I still feel like I hear like David Chalmers in my head going, but what about the hard problem? You know, yeah. like, um, so I don't know. I, I kind of feel like there's an interesting thing happening at the conference where like you get these, um, you know, friends walls up there and they say, it's, oh, it's clear that every, there's a continuum of consciousness. You need it for survival. And then you have these other people saying, oh, you don't need it for anything. You could be a zombie. Um, there's definitely a tension <laughs> at this well, conference. It was Humphreys that talked about the blindsight monkeys, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, that's just such a compelling case, right? That like if the monkeys can't have blindsight very obviously and structurally, that means that they're seeing stuff in the same way that we are, which means that they're very likely experiencing things in the, in the same way we are. Um, oh, one, one thing, uh, so th this came up in a question, he also talked about it with regards to the mirror test, said that monkeys uh, fail the mirror test. So I guess the distinction, I didn't realize Apes this. versus monkeys, yeah. yeah. Apes are just large primates without tails. Well, I mean, there's other things, but yes, that's part of it, yeah. <laughs> but. You know, he, he said basically they fail it, but they also don't sort of um, perpetually see, see like themselves in the mirror as like some adversary, like a bird might. Yeah. And they just basically phase it out and ignore it. And in fact, they'll use mirrors to sort of look behind themselves uh, in the environment for like figuring out where food is and things like that, which I definitely watch my cats do. Yeah. I feel like my cats are maybe the intelligence level of a, <laughs> of a monkey, at least with regards to the mirror test. Yeah, they're definitely not apes. But that was also sort of, again, hammering the point that there's, there's this continuum. It's maybe not pass-fail for yeah. any of these metrics. Um, the next guy who spoke was more on um, this front. It reminded me a lot. He didn't really talk about um, corvids or, like, crows, which are often cited as, like, a poten potentially have, you know, some very high levels of intelligence and consciousness. But it, they use baby chicks 
and they had a, a lot of experiments around, say, having items that the baby chick had impressed on, and uh, you, they sort of like have two curtains, and they'll move um, them behind the curtains, and they'll put like three on one side and two on the other, and then they'll like subtract one and move it over here, and you know the chicks are basically doing the math um, and figuring out which. Uh, which screen to go to based on which one has the, the most impressed items. Um, and there were some other ones that where they're like counting the number of specs and those seem like, I don't know, less interesting and also s somehow sketchy. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean like basically every experimental result like completely wowed me to the point where after a while I sort of got worn down and I thought like, how are you getting all of these extremely counterintuitive, like positive, experiments are you just not saying the negative uh experiments that you did um or are you just like a master intuitive experimental designer that you just know ahead of time what the outcome is going to be so you do the right thing every time i was i i feel the same as you i was convinced that chicks maybe can sort of count and subtract in basic ways some yeah. of the time um as for like does everything in the, you know every living thing have a, a number line that goes from left to right <laughs> Yeah, I, it, seems, it also seems like a weird, weird thing to like. Yeah, and yeah, yeah he sort of he didn't really make the point of what does that even mean. Yeah, um, I did think there somebody had a question. Um, again, you know, the perpetual thing at this conference is like, how do people deal with like really challenging oddball questions? But one of the questions was, um, I thought was really cool, and he he said that there's uh, certain number tasks that monkeys actually massively outperform humans on do you remember this right yeah. and they said it that they did like you know brain scans or whatever and it appears that um the monkeys are using the part of their brain that we use for language and so like we've kind of co-opted this thing and they, they still have it intact in whatever fashion and so they're able to sort of do some of these and I, i'd love to it's a it's a you should paper. watch this video because it's funny because as a human you watch the monkey do the task oh, have, you, have you seen it yeah and it's like clear that they're superhuman at it oh wow right because you're, you're like i what they can't, what, they counted it that fast, and um, maybe we could practice this and get better. I don't know, but <laughs> it does it does seem uh, yeah. pretty surprising. And I think this, you know, we've had conversations previous that language might limit, might expand how you see the world, but also might limit in some ways. Um, I, I wanted to bring up one thing. So he brought up Nick Humphrey, our guy from uh, the other day who, you know, has this hypothesis that, you know, when things were developing at first, you know, if you're an amoeba, you, you have a local response sort of along your skin. But yeah. eventually, and they called it like a, um, a efference copy. So instead of just locally responding on your skin, you send a signal that encodes that something happened on your skin to sort of some like central control center that can decide at that point to respond or not. So it, well, it goes well, beyond reflexes. And, and it can, um, initially it's sort of just coordinate, it's just notification about those responses, then eventually it's coordination, and then eventually it's meta coordination. Yeah, and then right? you get the meta loop. Yeah. But um, I bring it up to say that uh, there was a question afterwards that asked about schizophrenics and maybe their efference copies were messed up, and it, he did respond saying that there was some, some evidence there. And I, I always think that's interesting when again, when you have these general theories that sort of then paint a picture into like uh, mind disorders. And I thought like, does that mean schizophrenics could tickle themselves? <laughs> that's what I want to know. Maybe, maybe now, that's now out you've there. got your question for, for yeah. next year. Um, cool. Should we talk about, um, David Edelman? Yeah. 
Um, so this was also, you know, he talked a lot about um, uh, consciousness related to evolution and how, you know, vision, um, certain types of complex vision basically requires certain types of consciousness. Um, he really related this to, you know, some of the weirdo um, animals that are long extinct from the Cambrian explosion, um, which, you know, was one of the first really e big efflorescences of life on Earth and was basically saying, like, this was likely the first round of consciousness because you had all these things that sort of needed to um, do, all, do this type of complex visual processing. Yeah, and, um, you know, you made the point that a neuron is a neuron sort of across the whole animal kingdom, yeah. which is interesting. I don't think I quite, like, realized that or, or knew that. And so, you know, again, here's your through line. Yeah. Right? Um, speaking of neurons being important, did you want to say anything else about that guy or should we go into electromagnetic fields? Well, yeah. Well, so this Edelman guy, one thing, about, so he's like an octopus guy, right? If I oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which are, that's pretty fascinating. And the convergent evolution stuff with like eyes and also like octopus brains and things. I think there's a lot of juicy stuff there. But yeah, let's move on because... Yeah, I, for some reason, I didn't take as many notes about the octopus stuff, but it was pretty interesting. He he did have a game like um, octop, uh, octopuses. It's octopuses, right? Not, or is it octopi? I've heard octopi. them say octopuses at this conference, and I thought to myself, why aren't they saying octopi? So maybe it is octopuses. Yeah. Um, they could watch a video of another, uh, of another octopus doing a task that took them several tries and then execute that one on the first try. Actually, they would watch a video of just the successful try, yep. and then they would immediately do it that way, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of this like uh, one shot, zero shot thing in, yep. in deep learning where large language models also sort of, you know, you don't have to do a whole reinforcement learning thing. You can just say, here's one concept, show it to them once, and they can sort of apply it. That's kind of an emergent thing. Um, yeah, o octopus is pretty cool. The, so the next guy was Tam. <laughs> Yeah, well, we missed the first talk. We went to the electromagnetic fields session. Oh, right. This is a whole different plenary. And um, yeah, so the, the guy gets up there and he's the guy, I think we mentioned a couple episodes ago, who we, has been asking cool questions and he's yeah. like got an earring and he just, I don't know, he seemed like an interesting dude. And we're like, oh man, we should talk to this guy. Yeah, and he throws up like in his second slide a picture of him at Burning Man and yeah. like, okay, yeah. okay, <laughs> all right. Um, so I would say his big contention is basically that, um, neuronal spikes, is that the, is that even the right term? Yeah. Neuronal spikes, spike codes, he kept yeah. saying. Um, meaning like spikes in electromagnetic activity of, uh, parts of your brain neurons, which would be discoverable, viewable in like an. Yeah. EG. I think it's, I think it's when you're like synaptic firing, you yeah. know, you, you can just record the spikes alone. Um, and the idea is that like, this isn't enough to um, explain consciousness. He's like very unapologetically panpsychist and basically started get going into um, the idea that, uh, you know, the whole universe has electromagnetic fields and electromagnetic fields extend infinitely and there's like different, and so, so the, you know, I would say the idea that the brain is producing electromagnetic waves is, Incontrovertible. Measure, it's right? measurable. Yeah, measurable <laughs> That's right? what an EEG is. So I think that the um, 
and there was an interesting guy that got up at the very end. I think Ben was out in the bathroom, uh, and he was like, he, it was sort of a mic drop question. The guy was like very meek, and but he was just like, um, hey, just so you know, like we just did this study, and like all of the EMs that are detectable in the body are produced by neurons, and there's like not there's not any other like ner- you know, it basically kind of like trying to put a, throw a little salt on this uh, on on this theory. Um, I, you know, in general, I am softening a little bit on some of these, um, <laughs> the getting to you. <laughs> well, what I would say is like, I think that they, they're, they're, what they're doing is they're trying to do hard to science to describe phenomenon of which they had a prior, um, theory, right. Which is a bad way of doing science. Yeah. They took, they took mushrooms at Burning Man, exactly. saw the world as waves. Yeah. Actually the, he published a paper that got a bunch of, uh, that he said got a million hits and it, the headline in this is in the scientific American was the hippies were right all along. It's all about vibrations, man. Um, so, so it's like very clickbaity. Um, well, I think, okay. So you've brought this up in several sessions. I don't know if you've brought it up on previous episodes, but like the big question to me is, um, what direction is the causality? Yeah. Is there causality both ways? And if you're going to say I just haven't seen any compelling evidence for causality the other way that the waves themselves go back and influence mental states or even like, yeah, uh, well, here's what, so, so like, you know, this, we talked about this maybe yesterday or the day before, but the, um, you know, transcranial direct current stimulation does is, is like very obviously measurable effects. You know, the trans, um, cranial magnetic stimulation has very obvious effects. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's just like very, openly used science at this point, right? So the that that idea along with the idea that the your brain is producing electro signals, right? says to me that not all um, firing has to happen based on dendritic connection potentially, right? Like you could have parts of your brain that are firing based on these electromagnetic yeah, fields, but I, but I, I, I think it's a weak ca- y- yeah. I, yeah. Cuz what these guys want to say is that like we need a substrate that's magical and it's bigger than our whole brain where everything lives. And you've got Hameroff and Penrose saying, this is the quantum collapse. And the, there's like quantum waves that are sort of producing a general construct of consciousness and you've got electromagnetic fields and that's where it lives. And I think neither of those things, I think what I have softened on is the idea that these things exist as effects in any capacity. I don't think they've won me over at all in the idea that like, this is like the magic where consciousness happens. Yeah, and I think we have to think carefully, like just because transcranial magnetic stimulation changes your mental states or consciousness, I don't actually know if that proves the, again, the direction of causality. There could be another thing going on that changes your mental state and that is shown by like a difference in your EM fields. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, I'm not an expert here, but I, I, I mean, that that, that, I mean, to what you said, I think that does seem like the clearest in towards the kinds of things that they're saying yeah but it's still a huge jump from that to like you said like oh we're all part of one big wave that's sort of you know we're one big resonant brain of the universe and all that well and now we're you know we're sort of talking out of school on a lot of neuroscience stuff here probably right but like um but i you know there's the the classic adage is that like neurons that fire together wire together right and so if you're you you have things that are kind of like intending to wire together, they're building dendrites to other connections. Like that means that they weren't wired together previously. So there's, you know, if those, 
you know, fields or whatever are creating some level, some kind of attraction or promoting gender growth or whatever. I mean, I think those are like, I don't know. Those are, those are like things I'm willing to maybe concede in this argument without giving away like, oh, this is, this is, oh, you're right. There isn't like my electromagnetic field force. And I think the same thing with the quantum biology stuff. It's like, okay, you made some cases for where quantum stuff could impact or should impact biology. That still doesn't say anything about consciousness. Yeah. It's just the stuff often doesn't pass the smell test. Like, yeah. you know, you're a quantum biologist and every time you look for quantum effect, you find it, you get a positive result every single time throughout your entire career. And yet, you know, you're not, you know, publishing at the top venues, these things. It makes me wonder, like, is it passing peer review? It's sort of yeah. the more. Yeah. And he says at the end, we're about to start empirical validation. So I'll be very interested to see <laughs> what they come up with next year. But, I mean, I liked, I liked his talk. I liked the guy's yeah. uh, vibe and I thought, I thought it was a good talk. Um, I just am really skeptical of a lot of the EMs. Yeah. And, you know, so we almost didn't go to this session. I was kind of like, oh, I don't know. Should we go? And we were like, we'll check it out for a bit and see if we want to bounce. And I'm so glad we stayed because this last, I don't know if this is the last one, the next uh, talk um, just absolutely blew me away, was the most new information um, that I had seen in the entire conference. Both of us were kind of like, how did we not know anything about this? Yeah, I think our eyes are wide. We're slack judges looking at each other going, what? And sort of the... Uh, he had this interesting graph and he was kind of like, okay, if you think about yourself as a human adult, as being conscious, like other things that are conscious and, and gradations of that go in four axes, right? You evolved from different types of species going back, right? You also evolved from a single cell organism, from a single cell embryo at some point. Well, was that conscious or when did that grow? Right. And then you have different sort of types of consciousness, maybe LLMs, other things like that, that we're kind of trying to create to, to look more like us. So he was really focusing on, all right, well, well, what does cellular intelligence look like? And they're basically doing these studies where they are, I, I, I'm trying to like well, figure well, out how to describe this. Just one thing, I feel like you you often talk a lot about these kinds of things, like how do self-organizing systems, collective intelligence, I yeah. feel like this is right up your alley. Um, and it is, it's really mind-bending and profound to think about, I think he said at one point, maybe consciousness is, this is just what the feeling of a collective intelligence is. Because a lot of people would say, well, yeah. I don't feel like a bunch of cells mining in our business and sort of working together in very basic ways. It doesn't have, I feel like a unified organism. He says, well, maybe the feeling of consciousness itself is the feeling of that collective yeah. intelligence. Um, so he talked about, you know, uh, basically splitting apart certain small animals. Like if you take uh, a embryo that started to form a human embryo and it's like, you know, a pocket of cells and you split those up, those will all form totally independent embryos, right? They have some sort of cellular intelligence that's letting them know that they need to make a whole and complete entity. Um, that's, you know, obviously beyond DNA, which is the same for all of those cells. Um, and so he had this example of these ring, um, uh, worms or whatever, and they, there's a bunch of cells of them and they, they form a ring. And if you make the cells bigger, they will dynamically change the number of cells that make the ring so that the ring stays the same size. And it will go from say like 10 to three. 
And then if you make them big enough, it will make one ring with one cell, which is actually a completely different type of cellular structure, um, which is pretty crazy that it's like not just producing, you know, one chunk of those cells. Yeah, he, he said that maybe um, life could be defined as uh, an error correcting mechanism, which I thought was really interesting. Like showing, saying like, look at how robust life is, right? You can, yeah. you can sort of cleave these embryos and they, they're fine. They, they just still self-organize in this very robust, corrective way. And maybe that is the hallmark of life is this sort of error correction. The, the one thing that was really hard for me to grasp was the biological mechanisms that they're using to sort of make these adjustments. So they're, it's not genetic. It's not in the DNA. They're basically adjusting, if I understand correctly, sort of the way the ions are passing in like our electron, like, <laughs> I don't know. Are, yeah, are, are I, I don't know either. There's like, I guess, but it's biochemical... this is like actual experimentation happening on the cell wall. And they of... called it bioelectrical chemical signals in like the ion channels. Yeah. And essentially they realized that, you know, that, that stores a state, right? Yeah. And that stores some sort of morphological memory. And so if you muck with that, I'm assuming they like introduce a kind of like current into a specific part. But it's, it's, uh, it's basically, it sounds like an endogenous type way of doing this. So like it, rather than just like zapping it with an electrode or something, there's like, they're, they're using very sophisticated methods to sort of map match how that the cell normally does its process, but just kind of like hacking it. Yeah. But the upshot here is you can like, they like created new, uh, things that, that never existed yeah. before that are in some ways alive or they, you know, cut worms in half and said, no, no, you would grow, you would regenerate a tail. That was where your tail was but we're going to like muck with this bioelectrical thing and you're going to grow another head there instead. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, so that, that same, kind of granularity entity and no change to this entity. And, but then they, it's one of these things that can, will like sort of regrow segments. And if it has a head and a tail and you cut off, you cut it in half, it will regrow exactly one head and one tail for those two like divisions. Right. And so what it said was like, they, they mucked with these like cellular um, memories, I guess, and you could grow two heads. Yeah. And well, you could grow like weird looking heads and like, yeah. Oh yeah. All sorts of heads, heads of uh, worms that are apparently separated by like a hundred million years of evolution. Yeah. Like that, which is, and the wild. most, the craziest thing, Xenobot. Yeah. Was the Xenobots. <laughs> and he called it, he had some crazy word for it. It's like a genetic platform or something. I don't know. It was some next level. So stuff. basically you had some stem cells of a frog or something and you, you do some of this like cell wall manipulation or whatever it is that they're doing. And it turns into this different kind of entity that it that like it has a know, whole different sort of uh, like growth pattern, like not a tadpole, not a frog. It's just sort of like this chunk of like skin cells. He called it that kind of like moves around. It'll decide to go places or not. And if you put it in a little Petri dish with other little things like this, it will pick up chunks of this stuff and they will, it will like circle them up together. And then those chunks of, of stuff that it's uh, pulled together will turn into another one of these. He called it uh, <laughs> kin kinematic replication is the only known example of this. So it's basically yeah. like, you know, you would just find human body parts and put them in a pile and it would turn into a buddy. It was like, like yeah. crazy. Yeah, this is when we were just like, I can't believe uh, this is possible that we have this kind of like fine grained control over biology. I yeah. Have no idea. So uh, honestly, I'm going to do a deep YouTube Reddit <laughs> internet dive on this because I, I want to understand, like, 
are there more people do I, like I just I can't believe I'd never heard of this before because it seems pretty pretty mind blowing, and I think it speaks to so the stuff that I was kind of saying about like okay what what ground can we seed to some of these some of these theories, I think the biggest lesson I'm going to walk away from this conference is is that the com- intracellular or intercellular what intracellular what's inside of a cell intracellular Intra, yeah. the intracellular complexity is just like way larger than what i had ever thought right if you think of like each cell as having like a lot of you know you know understanding or embedded intelligence and then those kind of pairing together making higher order animals um that was just not something that i thought about before it's like okay this is just a ball with some um some dna in it yeah, should we move on to the ketamine session? Yeah. No, there was a session on psychedelics. Uh, well, there was the guy with the literal tinfoil hats that Oh, <laughs> we got nothing out of. Yeah. He had a picture. <laughs> he seemed really well-intentioned. Like, um, I we had a really hard time understanding what was, like, actually going on. There were, like, like skeleton-y robots with, like, electrodes poking out, but then there were humans with tinfoil hats on. I, I think I... I yeah, let me lay bare a cognitive bias I might have, which is when you, when I get lost, when I get confused, like deeply, thoroughly, fundamentally confused, I start to wonder if it's the speaker's fault. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, then I start to doubt the speaker. And then I start to wonder, is the speaker purposely obfuscating to cover up the fact that there's nothing going on underneath yeah. the, the covers here? But there I, was something about a guy recording a video of himself holding a microphone to his head and finding some <laughs> sonic frequency, if I recall, but that's about it. Um, all right, so, so the last session, again, this is the only dedicated session to psychedelics at the conference, I think. Maybe there was another one um, another day in the, in, the, in, the, in the evening and we didn't, we didn't make. Um, but the first guy, Marco Fabus, uh, I think he's an Oxford guy, is that what you said? Yeah. And, but he works with some of the people at University of Michigan who I'd heard speak last year. Um, and he was really looking at the brain states um, of ketamine. Um, you, you sounded like you knew kind of the, uh, more about the type of analysis he was doing. Yeah, they did like what's called a hidden Markov model analysis. So you sort of pick a number of hidden states. Um, you do some sort of clustering. You basically, you know, you take all the brain scans and you do this sort of high dimensional clustering and you pick... I think you pick seven. So you find the seven sort of most tightly knit clusters if you're going to have seven clusters of brain states. And then say, okay, now we're going to look at sort of the dynamics of this over time. And we're sort of, it's sort of creating kind of like syllables, right? And then you're seeing how which syllable follows which syllable overall sort of these, uh, you know, the like rolling it through time. And this, these syllables connect to words, connect to sentences. And so these hidden Markov models basically model these like transitional states between these uh, hidden states. And um, it's uh, something I'm familiar with because I've done research with uh, some neuroscience stuff. And it was pretty cool, right? Because then, then you have a model of sort of, within that hidden Markov model, you can basically figure out if someone is dissociated or not based on the control. And then you can also make metrics that predict or correlate with self-report, like timed self-report of when they thought they were most dissociated and so forth. And you can map that back to the brain states themselves that the clustering algorithm found. And you can say, oh, well, this one, the brain is lit up in a very uh, you know, way that indicates the default mode network is, has been shut off. 
and that's also correlated with the self-reported dissociation or whatever. And so you can start to really sort of piece together a picture um, in a pretty automated, you know, large data sort of way. Yeah, and, and I think the the takeaways were, you know, for anybody who has taken a dissociative were not super surprising. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, but they, they were probably kind of validating in why it's maybe valuable from a therapeutic stance in a, in a therapeutic setting, which is uh, it disrupts the system that sort of integrates your body data um, and your sense of self, right? So kind of like maybe a little bit of motor impairment, um, but also a little bit of uh, loosening of the um, the inner narrative. And, and at the la last year at this conference, the one of the most memorable talks I heard was um, a also from the University of Michigan, who's from um, a collaborator of uh, this guy. And they talked about the TPJ being a very specific area of focus of some of these intense um, uh, brainwaves. And the, uh, the TPJ is, come, is really critical in the Graziano attention schema theory, which is very much associated with your sense of self. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think that's kind of like an interesting, um, uh, and it, you know, it also ties very tightly with the term dissociative, which kind of comes from meditation and, you know, uh, that whole tradition. Yeah, he, he said that, um, his, you know, personal theory after sort of all this is that, you know, ketamine changes, he called it the integration of your interoceptive, uh, behavior or your interoceptive like model. And that kind of makes intuitive sense. But now, but you know, with this model, what does he have? He has sort of a quantitative thing that sort of backs up all of that. So it's backed up with data. So you can go beyond for like sort of intuition based on your own experience or self-report to something that's now correlated to uh, a very advanced model of these latent states of the brain of certain brain activity clustering patterns. So I, I just, I loved it. Um, I love that and then it's kind of reminiscent in style of the MIT guy that we talked about, was it yesterday, I think? Who was doing sort of like brain dynamics models uh, with pro pro propofol. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, those, those two were like, I think incredibly advanced in terms of like the mathematical modeling aspect, which yeah. I loved. Um, and then he talked about future directions, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, so, you know, he talked about like, looking more at the dissonance between the internal world um, and bottom-up information. And then he also talked about the potential. So ketamine is like a sedative, um, although there are multiple people in the audience who kind of disagreed with this assessment. <laughs> <laughs> but it's used in hospitals and stuff as a sedative. Um, and he said that there is at least one chemical, uh, uh, 3-MeO-PCE, right? which is a stimulant and a dissociative. Um, and so he's like interested in doing research on that, which I think would be awesome. Yeah, there's a whole family of aricyclohexamines, it's a mouthful, that all have different properties. Ketamine, I guess, is the one that's um, you know, easiest to get your hands on to experiments with. But there's a whole family with different but related properties and, you know, and don't have the, the K-hole sedative <laughs> aspect. Um, well, I think, I don't know if you want to talk about the last guy. So the, the other... Well, let, let's take a slight detour to the... So there somehow, I don't know why, there was a quantum, hardcore quantum yeah. field theory guy in the middle of the psychedelic uh, concurrent session. But I will say one thing that I thought stood out, which is he talked about symmetry. 
And you explained it pretty well, I thought. And it does make you think how fundamental symmetry really is. Because what is symmetry? And he said, it's literally cleaving between what is alike and what is different. So at a super fundamental level, defining what is the same and what is not the same, like you can't get more fundamental than that. So I actually, but then he lost me. Let's say it was like the first five <laughs> seconds. I'm like, all right, here we go. Here we go. This is going to be, yeah, oh, I, started do, I started doing stuff on my phone because I wanted to hear the rest of the, the psychedelic sessions, but it was just like, you know, there's times during a day when maybe I'll have more open-mindedness for some of that stuff. And it was just like, yeah, that was a rough one. And then there was a guy who had a session about, um, data storage which was a, a bit did, did he, was strange. he working with maps yeah yeah i think yeah. he works with, so he's doing stuff with like trying to gather data around psychedelic assisted therapy um and then the last guy uh i think you liked um i mean i thought he was fine i just he, thought he was really eloquent he's, um, it was kind of a nice uh, near tadmore he does um a harm reduction um and psychotherapy for uh people who do psychedelic stuff Sounds like he's like, you know, one of those people who shows up at festivals in a Burning Man and it's like t helping Helps people, people with yeah. yeah. Um, and he talked about integration, harm reduction. Um, I, I think he, he sort of uh, had like one of his techniques is to get people to sort of put themselves back in the experience. So not like asking or giving them a question or while they're tripping or anything, but afterwards try to put them back in it. So yeah. Like remember yeah, yeah, what you right. felt, remember what you were doing and now speak as if it was happening again kind of thing. And he said that that actually seemed to be way more effective for kind of getting people to relive their trips and then getting better information, um, yeah. better self-report information about the phenomenology. Yeah. Multiple people were like raising their hands. You could, it was a full house. It was a, there are a lot of people in there and people were like, Oh man, I'm so glad it's so lucky you get to do this work. I think there are a lot of people there who he, he also said, interestingly, I, I kind of wanted to ask him this question. Uh, he said that the, he came to this conference in like 2015 and it changed his life. I think he started doing psychedelic research or maybe doing psychedelics. I don't know. And then, and kind of getting into this space. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. And I guess one last thing that I thought was interesting, uh, he talked about the minimal self versus the narrative self with regards to even talking about your, your, you know, your integrative process, you know, uh, and I thought that was interesting. I keep hearing minimal self. I didn't know that was even a concept before this. I guess it harkens back to the like flying man. Uh, what is it? Avini? Av Avicina. Avicina from like a thousand AD where yeah. it's like you're in a complete sensory deprivation state you know, you don't feel any aspect of your body, you're floating, like, what is your consciousness like, right? Is it even there? Like, do you need sort of outside, you know, pressure impinging on you uh, from the world? Or could you be minimally conscious and still self-aware in that condition? So I keep seeing minimal self, but it's also kind of interesting to think about minimal self with regards to like experiences in a trip. Cause obviously, you know, obviously sometimes you have like ego dissolution to the yeah. point where maybe you think you are the flying man, right? From, <laughs> from a thousand AD, I've seen a uh, thought experiment. But then there's also the narrative self. Like how does this fit in with your own personal history? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think this guy's work is awesome. I think he's going to help a lot of people. Okay. One, one last thing. He kept talking about this word noetic. I had never heard before. Yeah, it's cool noetic quality where you think that you know you have insights that are almost more real than normal reality or uh you know i looked up this word because i'm like is he using it like in the normal way or is it a technical way 
And it's just a sense of revelation or a sense of direct knowing. Yeah, I think it's sort of like, I think it's William James coined it. And it was kind of like uh, Freud uses this term oceanic feeling. And then I think um, James uses the term noetic is kind of in the same boat. It's like pristine, like engagement with your environment, like spirituality basically is what like a a spiritual experience is what a lot of people say. Yeah, that's a nice, it's a nice thought. It's a nice word. Cool. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, we may, this may be the last one we do here. We might do one more, uh, probably we're debating whether we're going to go to, um, there's like just a couple of sessions tomorrow. Free will and uh, Sir Roger Penrose. Yeah. But if not, we'll see you on the next episode. Um, and we'll, we're going to keep going and doing, uh, more episodes about consciousness, AI, all of your favorite topics. Stay tuned. And uh, (laughs) you can see more about us at concon.show. Thanks. Thanks.